ah, stop that. No, no, I am not going to feed you right now. What? Oh, sorry, Miles, I was uh, talking to Coulson. Jay, you were talking to the agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Coulson? I was talking to the cat, Coulson. He turned into a cat? No, no, the cat, at least as far as I know, is just named after the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Why did you name your cat after a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent? Okay, first of all, he is not my cat, he's my parents' cat. And second... Why did your parents name their cat after a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent? He came with the name. I assume it's because he's a tuxedo cat, because he would be an absolutely terrible agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Okay, but anyway, as awesome as your parents' cat's namesake may be, we should probably get back to comics. What do you mean? Well, Agent Coulson is a movie character, not a comics character, right? Well, sure, he was at first, but you think they're gonna waste a cross-marketing opportunity like that? <sighs> okay, so what's his deal in the 616? Well, pretty much the same as his deal in the cinematic universe. He's an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., general-purpose badass, has the flying car. Is the flying car still named Lola? Yeah, but in the comics it's an acronym. Um, it stands for Low Orbit Liftoff Automobile. Man, Marvel and its acronyms. Although it's actually named after Coulson's ex-fiancé. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 280 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Okay, Jay, I have a question about the cold open. Yeah. So, was Coulson's ex-fiancée Lola, was her name also an acronym for Low Orbit Liftoff Automobile? Not that I know of, but I'm not going to discount the possibility. In my headcanon, it totally is. But uh, anyway, welcome to 2020. I think this episode is going to come out after the turn of the year. Yeah, it's going to be the official first of the new year, and man, let's hope for a better one. For serious. And that's actually pretty thematically appropriate, because as we stride into the future, I mean, okay, technically we always are striding into the future, but this time we have like a different number at the end of the year, uh, we're going to be talking about a character from the future. We are going to be talking about the glorious time action cop, Lucas freaking Bishop. Not only are we talking about Lucas Bishop, but we're talking about Lucas Bishop in his very own first self-titled solo miniseries. You may have noticed, gentle listeners, that we're covering a lot of miniseries these days. Marvel was putting out a lot of miniseries. We are getting to the glut, the excess of the mid-90s. Also, we really like miniseries because we can conveniently cover an entire series in one episode, and it's just so neat. It's very satisfying. It's true. You should try it sometime. Yeah. Man, although now now I'm just thinking about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and by extension Coulson the Cat, who's a really good cat. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a tuxedo cat. I tried to get my parents to rename him Raffles Gentleman Thief, but they felt like he, he should just stick with the name he came with. Um, he is, he's enormous, too. Well, you've, you've seen him, right? Oh, yeah, he's like a dire cat. No, he's so big. The thing is, he's, he's about the size of a 15 to 20 pound cat, but he's actually a 25 pound cat because he's really, really, really dense. Kind of reminds me of Harangi, the tiger goddess from Thor Metal Gods, which I started listening to, and it's, it's real good. It's real good. He's neither that big nor that bloodthirsty. I, that we know of. Cats have very complex interior lives. I mean, not sure this one actually does. That's fair. But we're getting immediately off track, as is our way. We're uh, ringing in the new year, at least in a, a predictable fashion. So let's talk a little about Bishop and his miniseries. But before we do, how about we talk a little bit about his past, which is our future, but an alternate future, so it gets really confusing. Now, Bishop is from Earth-1191. That's an alternate future where mutants police their own after teaming up with humans to fight the Sentinels in the aftermath of what's known as the Summers Rebellion, which I believe is named for the first time in this series. It is indeed. In that dark future, Bishop was a member of the XSE. That stands for Xavier Security Enforcers, although at first it stood for Xavier School Enforcers, but I think the writers changed it when they realized that made him sound like a futuristic hall monitor. He kind of is, though. He kind of is. He would be such a stickler for whether or not people had bathroom passes. Oh, unquestionably. 
a time-traveling convict and jerk named Trevor Fitzroy escaped Earth-1191 to the present Earth-616, that's the Marvel Universe's main present-day timeline, bringing a large number of bemulleted criminals with him. Now, Fitzroy is his own continuity snarl, but we're not going to be talking about him this episode, except in context of the backstory, because what you need to know is that Bishop and his buddies Malcolm and Randall followed Fitzroy and his miscreant friends through the portal into the present. In the process of arresting and or executing all of the future felons, Malcolm and Randall tragically died, and Bishop ran afoul of the X-Men, who were legends in his timeline. After a long period of being convinced that they couldn't possibly be the real X-Men, Bishop finally believed that they were, you know, actually the X-Men, and joined them. Since then, he's been pulled between the utilitarian ethics of the XSE and the much less murdery optimism of Xavier's dream. What's remained unshaken, however, is his sense of style. Because he knows, beyond anything else in his heart of hearts, that mullets and red bandanas tied around your neck are a great combination. And in his defense, at least in his own case, he's kind of right. Oh, that dude is styling. It occurs to me, I'm not sure that we ever brought this up on the podcast, so I'm going to bring it up now. Jay, I'm assuming you've seen the side-by-side comparison of Gary Coleman as a train conductor in an old episode of The Electric Company and Bishop? I have. Yeah, so listeners, um, Google Gary Coleman Bishop. It's, uh, if you'll pardon the word choice, uncanny. I'm not sure if Wills Portacio just totally ripped off Bishop's costume from Gary Coleman in The Electric Company, but uh, it's hard to come up with any other explanation. My understanding is that he did not, but I may be entirely mistaken. Whether or not it's coincidence, it's a pretty great set of images. It's also a really good indicator of the the extent to which Bishop's look is dependent on, you know, the person wearing it to be badass. There is another possibility. Oh? Gary Coleman is a member of the XSE. Seems plausible. Anyway... Let's run very fast from there to Bishop number one with the excellent, excellent issue title, Escape from Tomorrow. That could very, very easily be the title of a movie from around the same era, in fact, with a whole lot of neon. Now I'm wondering what it would be like if Bishop and Snake Plissken hung out. I feel like they would hate each other a lot. I think they'd kiss. Maybe they'd kiss, and then maybe their mullets would get tangled up, and it would be both awkward and romantic, and I'm pretty sure we just willed this into existence on fanfiction.net. Wait, what if they hated each other, but their mullets fell in love? Oh. Oh man, what a conflict. I love it. Anyway, this issue is written by John Ostrander, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Cam Smith, and colored by Joe Rosas. So John Ostrander, he's actually going to do a bunch of Bishop and XSE stuff. There's going to be an XSE miniseries and a Bishop miniseries, but I actually know him from a comic I will mention as often as possible, that being my favorite Star Wars Expanded Universe item, Star Wars Legacy. Great comic, highly recommended. And Jan Dersima does the pencils. Uh, This is, I believe, Pacheco's first Marvel stuff, at least in the United States. I think he'd done some work on Marvel UK series before this. Yeah, and Carlos Pacheco is going to do a ton of X work in the future. And I really, really like his style. It's very clean and solid. And the characters have a physicality to them. And also, uh, most of them have builds such that they kind of remind me of action figures, but like in a really good way. Yeah, this is this is cartoony in ways that feel akin to animation. It's got that kind of sort of clean lines and that kind of sense of motion and weight. And yeah, he's he's just a really, really all-around solid artist. Yeah, big fan. Now, this story is just called Bishop, like that's the only overarching title, but when it was collected into a trade paperback, it was called The Mountjoy Crisis, which I think maybe gives Mountjoy too much credit, although it is technically accurate. I mean, it's more The Mountjoy Facilitated Crisis. Yeah, yeah. Man, that douchebag. We'll get to him. I want to briefly complain, by the way, I was doing some research and I was looking up official stats and and Bishop is is officially listed as having a secret identity. And I think that's nonsense. No, no. I mean, it makes sense. As we saw from Moonstar in the MLF, even if you use your last name as your code name, it can still be very mysterious. Do you think it's because villains in the government are like, yeah, no one's no one's going to do something that obvious? Probably. Yeah. I just man, it's just not a good code name. Moonstar or Bishop, or both? Either, really. I mean, they're both cool-sounding as codenames until you take into account that they're not 
you know, code. Whatever, Edidin. Anyway, each issue of this miniseries, remember, it's the 90s, so each issue had its own metallic-inked cover, and each cover had a different color of metallic ink. I like number three's red metallic ink cover best, personally, but I love red metallic anything. I mean, I think it's actually spot foil, and I actually really, really like this better than a lot of the big fancy full cover things. I think it it works really well. It's really cool looking. In general, like I, I I also dig things like spot gloss on covers. I think they're a very simple, very cool way to make covers a lot more interesting and to add textural components to them. Do you remember that one Daredevil cover that was drawn in like a sketchy John Romita Jr. style? It may have been John Romita Jr., um, but it was all black except for like kind of white highlights that were glow in the dark. Vaguely. There was there was a book long ago that I edited that I was trying to convince um the the folks with the power to approve or deny this, um, to approve doing the cover art just in spot gloss on a matte black oh, background. So great. Which would have been pretty cool. Yeah. But we should probably talk about a comic, like the contents of a comic. I suppose so. A, a comic though with with very cool spot foil on the covers. So we open Back in Uncanny X-Men number 287, because Carlos Pacheco redraws Bishop and Randall and Malcolm's big fight with the escaped future convicts over the course of four pages. It's the exact same dialogue that was in that issue of Uncanny, but a very different visual take. Like, the same stuff happens, but from totally different angles, totally totally different panel layouts. And Pacheco's style is a hell of a contrast with John Romita Jr.'s very blocky, very line-heavy style. But they're both great. Damn, I love it so much when this happens. There's something to be said for the coolness of artists redrawing each other's comics panel for panel. Like, that's a neat thing to contrast to. But seeing two very different artists take on the same scene with, you know, their own breakdowns and layouts is always so rad. Oh, seriously. So, to remind everyone of what happened back in Uncanny X-Men number 287... Malcolm, Randall, and Bishop fought a bunch of future mullet folks. They quoted Hank McCoy, who apparently is very quotable in the future, and Malcolm and Randall sacrificed themselves in order to save Bishop, and both got blown up. As it turns out, this is not actually a flashback. This is Bishop running through the scenario over and over again in the danger room, trying to figure out what he could have done differently that might have saved his friends. So I've been watching The Expanse, and I don't want to give anything away, but there is a scene much like this in The Expanse, and goddamn, this is an effective emotional technique just to show how driven a character is, how haunted by guilt they are when they have, you know, holograms and stuff. Yeah, agreed. So one thing that's interesting here is that Bishop's bandana is around his head instead of loosely draped around his neck, and his shirt is open like he's been exerting himself in here for a while. It's a nice little visual detail to show just how fixated he is on doing this. Is his shirt open? I think he's just wearing a shirt that's really super asymmetrically low cut. I'm not sure that shirt that we see could close. I think it's sort of folded back, like the way Havoc does with his jacket. No, it is folded back, but I I think if you folded it forward, you'd still end up with a deep V, just to have a narrower one. Okay, alternately, maybe that just shows how hard Bishop has been working out. When he first went into the danger room, it was able to be closed, but now he is so buff and swole from all of these workouts that he can't close it anymore. I think that's clearly the most reasonable explanation. So Storm drags Bishop out of the danger room and invites him to a show in town. Bishop is extremely resentful at being dragged away from his danger room practice and his obsession. Is this an order, then? But finally comes around, because come on, who's going to say no to Storm? You're right. I'm being ungracious. I apologize. I would be honored to escort you, Aurora. Damn skippy you would. And Xavier offers to help them get tickets and says they should think about what show they want to go to. I actually really love it when he's ex-dad who recognizes his privilege and helps out his, his kids with it. Yeah, but you know he oversteps and gets creepy like, and if you need a hotel room. Yeah, he, he probably does too. Also, he's going to ask like way too many questions about what they thought of the show since it turns out to be Cats and like start really implying that maybe he was a little too into Cats himself. Bishop himself responds to it in a way that kind of leaves me with a lot of question marks. It was instructive. In what? What did this show instruct you in, Bishop? How to sing songs so that you maybe get into cat heaven? 
I, I, I don't know if it's really cat heaven exactly. There's, there's definitely like some cat ritual murder. Well, let's escape this conversation and head to, uh, I don't know, Central Park. What's going on there? Central Park. Oh, what, what isn't going on there? It's 1994. Um, but no, what is going on here specifically is that Bantam, and that's the toad to Fitzroy's Magneto, is on the run. And for once, he's not on the run from Bishop. He's on the run from a guy named Mountjoy, who is a newly revealed future refugee. Now, we thought that Bishop and Malcolm and Randall had hunted down all the refugees, and then once Fitzroy got killed, they were all fully, fully gone. Apparently not, and we will get to the mystery of why. But first, let's talk about this guy's appearance, because we're used to seeing neon mullets and strange body armor and giant guns and really bizarre slang, and this dude doesn't exactly fit with the uh, various criminals of Earth-1191 that we've seen. No, this man, in fact, very specifically, is from the long hair and three-piece suit school of Shinobi Shaw fashion. He's even got this fancy cloak, which actually looks really good on him. I think it, I, I think he's wearing a great coat. I may be misremembering. It's a pretty great coat, I'll tell you that much. But as this Mountjoy guy finally pounces upon Bantam, the presumed upcoming murder is interrupted by some random punks who show up. You know, they have bats and chains and daggers and buzzed hair and lots of uh, spiked items. Punks, like you see in, you know, comics. Also, one of them has a crash test dummy shirt, so, uh, mm, 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 I guess. First of all, Mountjoy's battle banter is just god-awful. Like, it's so bad. But it's also very themed. Like, he calls himself the chairman of the board because he's so bored by this, and... Then he does a hostile takeover bid, which is where he uses his powers to absorb one of the punks into himself. It's all business talk. I love the idea that in this future, business jargon has all become euphemism for violence. Wait, wait, wait. Maybe... Okay, so Mountjoy doesn't seem to visually fit into the future, but we know he's from the future, and I know uh, that they call stocks futures, and stocks are a business thing, so it's all starting to come together. Is it, though? I don't know. I don't know much about business. Uh, probably? Bantam runs the hell away from all of this confusing business jargon and runs into Bishop because he briefly called the X-Mansion and found out that Bishop was seeing a play and just sort of ran around Times Square, I guess, until Bishop got out. I do appreciate that the other X-Men who were home were kind of horrified that Jubilee just gave out Bishop and Aurora's general location to someone. Jubilee is kind of green. Kind of. Now she's, I guess, more red because she's in Generation X. I guess this was before she left? Anyway. There's specifically a note saying that this is before Generation X, because the Generation X comic had launched by this point, so she was over there, but she was also in this, and so, you know, you have to rationalize that. Well, anyway, Bantam excitedly tells Bishop that his favorite cat is Magical Mr. Mistopheles. No, I mean, he says that Mountjoy is gonna come and kill him. He doesn't actually say the cat's thing, does he? Uh, I read it pretty recently. I don't think so, but, uh, who can say? And I guess Mountjoy actually does kill Bantam when he shows up and everybody fights, because Mountjoy later mentions that he did so. I don't know, but Bantam's also totally going to be back in the Solo Bishop series written by the same writer? It's ambiguous. Maybe he just mostly kills him. Maybe. Anyway, over the course of this fight and its various exposition dialogue, we learn a number of things. First, we learn that Mountjoy rode Bantam here, hence Bishop not having known that there was another future convict in the present. I'm going to break in right here because uh, I, I think we need to qualify that we don't mean rode like sitting on his shoulders or piggyback, since that is definitely what I would be picturing if I were hearing that phrase devoid of context. Right, right, right. Mountjoy can possess people. Yeah, he's got a couple different powers. So we already talked about the hostile takeover thing, where he absorbs you and can do all your stuff and learn all your knowledge, and eventually, if he keeps you absorbed for long enough, you just sort of, like, stop existing. Unless he divests you, it's more random business jargon. That's so weird that that's a thing. His second power is that he can become a silent partner, continuing the theme, and that's what he did with Bantam. He just sort of hung out inside Bantam's brain or body or soul or whatever, and Bantam looked like Bantam, Bantam acted like Bantam, but Mountjoy was subtly controlling Bantam. 
Okay. And finally, continuing the trend of business jargon, he has a basilisk field. Business basilisk? Business casual basilisk? No, but that is definitely the name of my new band. Um, no, the best, I, I don't think this is taken from anything. It's a good name for this ability, at least. The basilisk field slows enemies down when they're near him. But it should turn them to stone or poison them if it's a basilisk. So it's an inappropriate name and it's not related to the theme. I object. No, but basilisks, at least, I, I mean, it should, it should be triggered by line of sight. I agree with that. But basilisks, you know, it, the, the idea of, of slow petrification is, is, is part of the whole basilisk concept. Oh, okay. I forgot that it was supposed to be slow. I don't know. It varies. The last thing we learn is that Mountjoy was trained in Earth 1191 in the future by the M-plates, the mysterious M-plates that we keep hearing about. And we don't ever exactly find out what's up with them, I, I don't think anyway, but the strong implication is that the Generation X villain M-plate, who we were just talking about in the Winter Special, manages to infect enough people with his M-platiness, which is a thing we find out later he can do, to create this entire group of them. Do you think they all get weird little undead chauffeurs? I hope so. Honestly, that makes the position a lot more attractive. I might consider becoming an M-plate, despite the evil. Mountjoy, he manages to hide behind the, the mountain of speech bubbles as all of this gets explained, and is able to ambush Storm and institute a hostile takeover. And it is so creepy, the way that Pacheco draws this. Like, her screaming face is just sort of trying to escape from the surface of Mountjoy's forehead as he grins maniacally. It's pretty rad. And then he's just Mountjoy, but he's got breasts. Huh. Okay. I gotta say, I want to go back to the face thing, because it's really creepy, and it really never stops working. Pacheco's gonna use this every time Mountjoy uses this ability. And it is such a cool, visceral, weird representation. Actually, Mountjoy's powers in general are really, really well done. They they are, yeah. It's a little ambiguous just what the distinction is between the different versions of his takeover possessy powers, but visually they are rad as hell, and they're pretty terrifying too. Well, the main question I think is of, of whose body is central, because he's got the ability where he sucks other people into his body. And the one where he, which, which is what he used on Storm, I think that's that's the hostile takeover. And then the silent partner one, he's basically hitchhiking along with them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there's a big fight, and Mountjoy starts zapping Bishop with lightning because he has Storm's power since he sort of ate her. And the fight does end. Storm manages to break out. Mountjoy runs away, but not before Bishop gets shot with a bunch of poison arrows from Mountjoy's very futuristic, which is to say, not at all, crossbow. Maybe the poison is the futuristic part. Either way, that's the end of the issue. Uh, Bishop 2, one-man posse. I believe has the same creative team. Indeed it does. And it opens in a very different setting as Bishop runs through the smoke and rubble of the X-Mansion, as Pacheco draws some pretty great backgrounds. The X-Men are dead, and this is a flashback again to what's presumed to be the death of the X-Men based on the incomplete bit of voicemail from Gene that's survived to the future. That was from Uncanny X-Men number 287 as well. That's the one where Gene talks about the X-Trader. Now, this will all turn out to have been Onslaught, but that doesn't exist now. That That is just a, a twinkle in the, in the future's eye. And Bishop manages to run in there to try to save Gene, and he encounters the X-Trader, he encounters the killer, and it's him. But it's all a dream, of course, and he wakes up to Holo Shard snarking at him, because in the first issue, Bishop handed Forge a device that he'd put together. This was a metal computerized bracer that contained the memories and personality of his sister, Shard Bishop, who died in the future. I, I, I've said this before, but I really love that the, um, the, the, the parents' bishop were like, what should we name our kids? Let's go with Lucas and Shard. I'm just saying, there's a reason that Lucas goes by his last name. Fair. Shard's inks and colors are soft and diffuse, uh, even though she's a fully opaque character, in a way that only 90s digital coloring could really get across. And it works. It continually reminds us that she's not exactly part of the world, that she is, in fact, a hologram. And I love the way that works. She's a hologram almost everywhere, because... Remember, the Danger Room programming allows for solid light projections. 
So there, she actually can influence the physical world, but nowhere else. Mm -hmm. But she tries to influence Bishop's world by yelling at him for not killing Mountjoy during the fight. She figures even if Storm would have died, with Mountjoy having escaped, even more people are going to die. Yeah, we talk about characters as, you know, the devil or the angel on someone's shoulder, at least in memory, and Shard is very much the commanding officer on Bishop's shoulder. Xavier, on the other hand, is is all ready to have a tug-of-war over the soul of Lucas Bishop. Except that the X-Men don't kill, and Bishop is an X-Man. Shard disagrees. XSE do kill, and Bishop was XSE before he was anything else. And there's basically our premise. There's the thematic core of this miniseries. I also really like that Shard calls her brother by his last name. Yeah, I like that too. So Shard keeps bantering with Xavier. She's like, dude, your dream got your ass killed in our timeline. And Xavier's rejoinder is actually pretty great. Yeah, first of all, that's an alternate future anyway, so you don't know that. And, well... Long term, it led to human mutant peace, so maybe it was for the best, and I wouldn't take anything back if I could. Bishop has never really been one for theories or philosophies, so he just goes off to kill Mountjoy, saying that, hey, if that means he has to resign, if he has to turn in his X-gun and X-badge, then so be it. And Xavier takes a moment to get his full Claremont on and, and, and solemnly intone. At stake here is the very soul of an X-Man. Meanwhile, Mountjoy is working his way through the local population. So he seduces and absorbs this lady, and that's not important. What's important are two things. One, there's a stack of books right near her. There is The Thing, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and In Company of Wolves. So honestly, if she keeps those books around, maybe she should have seen this coming. And once again, we've got the really good motif of her screaming out of his forehead, and in this case, him just sort of absentmindedly, the way you'd you know, facepalm to try to clear your head, smacking her face back in. I love how nonchalant he is about doing so. One thing that's very clear about Mountjoy, as much as so many things about him are confusing, we really get the sense of just how little he values human life. And I know that's a standard supervillain thing, but it just comes off as so cold and impassive with Mountjoy. It's pretty chilling. Something I really love is that it's never really firmly established whether the faces coming out of out of other parts of his head are actual things, physical things that other people can see, or if they're just the way his powers are being represented in here. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I don't know whether it's literal or not, but either way, ugh. The fact that I don't know somehow makes it even cooler. Seriously. So, Bishop, who is in full action cop, full renegade cop who gets results mode at this point, motorcycles around looking for Mountjoy, and as he does so, the effect is utterly ruined by the holographic shard. She activates herself and just sort of stands on top of his speeding motorcycle, or like slouches improbably in front of it, or like partially phases through him while she lays down. I enjoy how committed she is both to drawing attention to this guy who's vaguely attempting to fit in, and also just fucking with his genre that he's chosen for himself. To be fair, though, Shard does her best when it comes down to it. Bishop's got a plan. It involves taking her to the police station as a prisoner. Um, and, and she has carefully learned some 1995 slang, or at least done her best to recall what she could of it. Hey, watch it, you dirty screw! You dirty screw. I love it. But yeah, Bishop has taken Shard to the police station because he figures Mountjoy would have had to have possessed somebody to sneak up on him and Storm, and that person probably would have gone to the cops after that happened. And turns out, dude's totally right. Which is surprising, since the person Mountjoy possessed was one of the cops who was about to just sort of set upon him. Um, and they, they don't really seem like they'd be that interested in going to the cops, but I guess this guy was you know, not as hardcore as he wanted his pals to think. I don't know. It's plot. Whatever. Point being, Mountjoy's waiting, and it's fight time again, and Pacheco gets to draw a kick-ass action sequence here, as Mountjoy steals a police car, and Bishop chases after it on his motorcycle, and he jumps onto the car, and he shoots his engine with his giant gun, and the car explodes, and the two people go flying, and it is genuinely awesome, and it's Seriously, just feels like an action cop movie, a genre I'm not normally into, but apparently if the main character is Lucas Bishop, that changes. 
Well, it works really, really well as a comic sequence, too. I mentioned that Pacheco's comics have a really, really animatory feel, and I think there's nowhere where that comes across more than here. Totally. And so Bishop then wakes up and rises up. In the future, it's Earth-1191 again, and his sister says he's always been there, so, oh no, that means all of his history has all been a dream, and he was never in Earth-616. It's okay, he just has some major head injuries. Yay, traumatic brain injury. And that brings us to number three, Future Intense. Another great title. It's a terrible title. I love it! Pacheco draws a glorious post-apocalyptic cityscape here. There's burning rubble everywhere. There are skyscrapers with their tops blown off and crashed and leaning into each other. And one little detail is that the shard who's with Bishop is inked and colored just like Bishop himself. She's not drawn like that fuzzy hologram anymore. It really gets across how real this feels to Bishop. Now, this is, again, of course, a dream or hallucination. Um, and he wakes up again in the present and, and runs after Mount Joy and continues his chase, even though he's really in no condition to do so. Especially once Mount Joy whomps him in the, up the side of the head with a big metal pole and knocks him off a building into another future flashback. And this is an interesting one because this time it's Bishop and Shard as children, it's it's an actual flashback to their past, and they're talking to this old blindfolded guy named Hancock about the Summers Rebellion. Now, at this point, we still don't know much about the Summers Rebellion, except that it was apparently where humans and mutants teamed up to fight Sentinels, maybe, or something like that. We actually won't find out very much about it until Peter David's second X-Factor run many, many, many years later. So a kind of g- cool detail here is that we don't at this point, and we won't for a long time, know which Summers or Summers is the Summers Rebellion is about. We know there's at least one central figure here, but we don't know whether it's Cyclops, whether it's one of his time-traveling kids, or whether it's someone else entirely, as Hancock says. Even met Summers. That one was a piece of work, I can tell you. I had fire in my eyes those days. Literally. Up until the backfire burned him out. I gotta wonder... Based on what this dude's saying, do you think maybe that is a grizzled veteran Cyclops who's not owning up to him having been Cyclops? I don't, and I don't for one specific reason. Whether or not he was intended to be Cyclops when this was written, at the point where we're recording this, we know that he probably isn't. And the reason for that is that in the X-Factor arc, where we saw more of the Summer's Rebellion, we also saw what Cyclops looked like at this point in time, and he was you know, like more than half cyborg by now. And the point is, probably not this dude. Indeed. But I do want to give a shout out to Joe Rose's colors in this scene, because the future is as gray and brown as an early Xbox game, except what the characters are wearing. They're all wearing these bright, solid colors. I mean, they're rags, yes, but there's bright blue, and Shard's got this bright pink cloak, and it really does illustrate very well that these characters, they're still kicking. They still have hope. They still have vitality, even in this dark future. Or they're in a future where there are specific class divisions related to colorfulness versus minimalism. I mean, that's something that exists on and off even now, depending on fashion. Maybe. I like it metaphorical. It's more fun that way. I mean, it works both ways. It can express the same thing in either of those circumstances. It's just that one of them involves an additional set of of factors. Bishop is sort of going in and out of consciousness. He's, He's oscillating between the memory and the present day as he's now fleeing Mountjoy. He sees skinheads in the present day as punks from the future. He sees cops as XSE agents from the future, the ones who recruited him specifically. And he knows he's fading. He knows he's having a rough time, but he's in either era still Lucas Bishop. Get up. Get up. Get up. Up or die. Coward. Useless. Get up. Mountjoy is having way too much fun to even pay attention to Bishop's self-derision, so he just shows up and crossbows the cops to death and absorbs the two punks. That jerk. Now, Bishop, I'm ready to face you man-to-man. Or is that man-to-man cubed? Because he's three people. He's got two punks inside him. That would just be man times three. That would be three-man. He can't be expected to understand how math works. He has people to do that for him in his business land, where he does business for his business job. 
such shitty businessman if he doesn't know the difference between exponents and, you know, multipliers. That's probably true. Maybe that's why he got arrested. Maybe he did math so badly in his business company that he was doing something illegal. Yeah, uh, you mean aside from the murder? Aside from the murder. Bad math and murder. Both are crimes. Yeah, I'll buy that. Bishop manages to take down Mountjoy, but he can't quite bring himself to kill the villain. And he's hurt enough that this triggers yet another flashback. This time, he's going back to a later period in his life and his time in the XSE. Shard's now Bishop's boss, and she's really upset with him because he's turned down yet another command position she set up for him. She's being serious here. I mean, she has risen through the ranks, and Bishop has staunchly stayed in the same place. The street is where I belong, Shard. You wanted a big-time command position, and you're getting it. Fine for you, but I don't want that. Oh man, he, he really he really is just like the cranky old detective. He is. He just wants to get the job done. He just wants to keep things simple. He wants to live in a world that's simple. I think he just really likes shooting people. <laughs> there's probably that. He's, he's very good at it. Hmm. So there's more fighting and there's more running, blah, blah, blah. But eventually, Mountjoy does ambush Bishop and does the silent partner thing to him. And now I have you, Bishop. We're going to destroy what you hold most sacred, Bishop. We're going to destroy the X-Men. And that destruction, if it occurs, will occur in Bishop number four, Final Reckonings. Spoiler, it does not. But man, the Mountjoy dialogue we open with as he taunts Bishop while being inside his skull is so evil! The strongest must die first. Storm first, gutshot. Cyclops, Psylocke, headshots. Perhaps we play with Rogue, use her to help us kill the others. Professor X, of course, must be eliminated quickly. Jean Grey? She needs to go last. Isn't that how the scenario runs, Bishop? And this works so well because we've already seen Bishop earlier in the miniseries have a nightmare where he is the X-Trader, and here's a scenario where potentially he is going to be the X-Trader, where Mountjoy is going to make the murder of the X-Men happen using Bishop. Now, Bishop is able eventually to push Mountjoy out, but in the initial chaos, Mountjoy manages to absorb not one but three of the other X-Men, Psylocke, Archangel, and Gambit. He's got all of their powers, he's got all of their memories, and he's got a potential ticket out of there because he knows that Gambit is going to survive into the future as witness. Or at least he thinks he knows that. It's going to be retconned later. Yeah, but as continuity has it right now, Gambit is indeed the witness in Earth 1191. This is actually a really clever use of continuity. I like it when you can have something that's creepier because of some continuity stuff that the readers know about, even if it's not explicitly mentioned here. Yeah, you don't need to actually know the details of this because Mountjoy does specify that he knows Gambit's going to survive to their future. Now, Mountjoy is really banking on a lot in terms of their future being the same one that he's headed towards in this timeline. Doesn't he know how timeline splits work in the Marvel Universe? Come on, hasn't he read Days of Future Past? No, but maybe he's possessed someone who has, in which case, well, yeah, he's possessed Bishop, so you would think he'd have a better working understanding of that by now, but no. Bad at math, bad at timelines. Mountjoy should be fired and arrested. Yeah, he's definitely not qualified to be a, a CTO. He's getting fired from business. That would be a chief temporal officer, of course. <laughs> nice. Now, Bishop is unconscious again. I am so worried about this guy's brain. But this time, there's actually no time for a flashback because Holo Shard shakes him awake. Yo, bro, time to wake up. Mountjoy's off to eat the X-Men and I'm only a hologram. And she yells at him again for not killing Mountjoy earlier when he just had one X-Man possessed. Bishop disagrees. That was always your problem, Shard. You were always ready to sacrifice lives, including those of your comrades. I got the job done, no matter the cost, physically or emotionally, to myself or others. That's why I got promoted and you didn't. You wanted command. I didn't. I was comfortable where I was. Shard is a really, really good foil to Bishop. 
uh, one of the things I like is that it gives Bishop to push back someone to push back against in the same way that the X-Men have pushed back against Bishop's more extreme tactics. Exactly, yeah. And also it becomes a conflict not only between the ethics of the XSE and of the X-Men, but between Bishop's own potential versus his identity. It becomes a question of how strongly centered in his own desires he is in a life that's so driven by duty. Well, and whether he's still kind of got one foot in the future or whether he's really committed to being in the present now. Well, in the present, there's a plan. Holographic Shard poses as actual Shard and lures the bursting with powers and breasts Mountjoy into the danger room. Intermittent breasts, because he he takes on and loses different characteristics of different bodies as he goes. Have you heard my new band, Intermittent Breasts? We, We haven't recorded any songs. And you never will. I do love this plan, though, the whole lure the bad guy into the danger room thing. Like, it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. Not only is it an oldie but goodie, but I'd like to think that it's one that Bishop specifically got out of X-Men history, because it is such an oldie but goodie. Like, this this is a Cyclops signature, we're attacked in the X-Mansion and don't have access to full powers move. And Bishop goes full action movie. There is this great panel of him diving sideways whilst firing two guns and also dodging flechettes from, you know, the absorbed Archangel inside Mountjoy. But is he going, R? He will be shortly. Pacheco draws these scenes so freaking well, though. And the fight ends as it really, really has to. Holographic Shard, who, like you mentioned earlier, Jay, is able to be solid in the danger room, is restraining Mountjoy and demands that Bishop zap them both with all the energy he's absorbed, even though it might burn out Shard's holographic matrix, which I don't know what that means. I'm not sure that it means anything, but it's it's not good. It very much seems like punching the monitor to me. Yeah, yeah, pretty much that. You remember a couple episodes ago when we were talking about terrible portrayals of technology and fiction? Distinctly, I've been really intensely wanting to rewatch Hackers ever since. <laughs> Fair. But Bishop makes the call, and he does zap both of them, and it does start to burn Shard's holographic matrix out, and she starts to glitch out, and she starts to fade. As she does, she keeps insisting the same thing she's been insisting this whole time. Execute the prisoner! Shard, the professor's dream! His way doesn't work! Kill the prisoner, Bishop! Shard... I love you. You are my sister, and I cannot bear losing you again. Mountjoy is a killer. He does deserve to die. But if I kill him, is it justice or vengeance? What do I become? The question. The forces rip me apart. I must be what I have always been at heart. I... I am... I am an X-Man! Frankly, Bishop, you're way too, too dramatic to be anything else. This is the part where he fires energy in the air while yelling, ah. <sighs> oh, Bishop. I, it's so easy to just, just drop Bishop into that role in Hot Fuzz. It really is. I just want to see him in movies. I want to see him in everything. I love Bishop. He's, he's so perfect to be sort of the weird fish out of water because he's too hardcore for his environment character. He totally is. So he fires the energy into the air, though, so he specifically doesn't kill Mountjoy because his feelings about Mountjoy and surfing are so strong. Shard, I'm sorry. Okay, well, fuck you. And Shard fades. Now, Xavier actually got home to the X-Mansion during the fight, as did some of the other X-Men, and they're all watching from the control room. And so the issue ends with Xavier saying to Bishop that he's proud of him, that Bishop chose his heart over his past, and that he, Bishop, has sacrificed more than maybe any other X-Man. Uh, we should add that he is able to get Mountjoy to spit out the other three X-Men over the course of this fight. Like, they're not still stuck there. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're fine. Everybody's fine. I mean, except Shard. And she'll actually be fine later, because she shows up in Uncanny X-Men Annual 1996, and then she joins X-Factor, even though she's a hologram, and it's real weird. Shard is a complicated philosophical question, because while Shard is okay, there's also a Shard who's dead. Yeah, it's unclear. It's it's a lot. That's the point. It's, it's a whole lot. Mountjoy shows up again, too. So uh, in that regard, Shard was right. 
And that's going to be in Excalibur number 96, uh, written by Warren Ellis, but also drawn by Carlos Pacheco. As I recall, he's going to end up fighting Madeline Pryor for some kind of rank in the UK Hellfire Club. Comics are weird, Jay. Right? So that, that wraps up the first Bishop miniseries. What did you think? I don't know, because on the one hand, it doesn't really cover very much new ground. I mean, yes, there's a new villain, but honestly, whatever. Mountjoy could have been filled in by like many other different villains, like Fitzroy could just come back or something. But I do like that we get this close examination of something we've already seen with Bishop, but only as sort of a, a side character. I like that we get to get into Bishop's head, but mostly I like that we get to get into Bishop's genre. I like that we get to see how Bishop sees the world. The answer is Bishop sees the world as a mid-90s future cop movie. He does, and it's genuinely awesome. So is this series super important to continuity? I mean, not really. There's a little bit of shard stuff, but you know, you could learn about that in a single speech bubble. But it's fun. It's also a very, very good bit of Bishop characterization in terms of what drives him and in terms of the things he is and isn't willing to move on from. Agreed, yeah. So I'm really glad we're going to get to see Ostrander write a fair bit more Bishop. Like, I'm really looking forward to covering those little bits. Now, Bishop is, being from the future, a mess and tangle of continuity. And uh, we are, of course, a, you know, continuity-centric and podcast meant to bring some sense and explain the X-Men. And so we are here to answer your questions. Cameron C. Chong asks on Tumblr, in a recent episode, you all talked about the friendship between Storm and Jean Grey, and it got me thinking about other female friendships, particularly between Jean Grey and Polaris. In theory, they were both early X-Men and dated brothers, but they never really seemed to have one-on-one -on -one moments that I can think of. Can you all think of any stories or moments where their friendship is explored? Alternately, what would you like a Jean Grey and Polaris team-up to look like? That's a really, really good question and a really, really good point. And I feel like this is going to be one of those questions where we answer it and then we get like 12 different people giving us 12 different things that we forgot to mention. Which honestly is one of my favorite things about answering these questions on the air because there's the perspective we bring to this. But obviously, again, we can know a lot and not remember every single detail. And we can know a lot and not necessarily hone in on every sing single detail. The bits that stick out to other folks and the bits that stick out to us aren't always the same. And it's really cool getting the chance to see which moments have really grabbed onto other folks. So the first one that jumps out to me is, I think, emblematic of just how few of these scenes there are, and that's in X-Men Unlimited number seven, the one where Scott and Jean and Polaris and Havoc fight Sauron. Not a great issue, but a rare example of Jean and Polaris at least teaming up. And actually, Kid Cadaver in the comments of our site talked a fair bit about why they really liked this issue for that reason. Because, yeah... Jean and Lorna should totally be buds. They were the two women in the Silver Age X-Men for a long time, even if Polaris barely was on any missions at all. Like, there should be a lot there. But after that, they weren't really on teams together very often at all. I mean, in X-Men Blue, we did have Polaris and teenage Jean Grey. So uh, that was a thing, I guess. There's a bit in Chuck Austin's run during the very brief period when Polaris and Havoc are about to get married before that goes up in flames, when Polaris mentioned that, mentions that Jean's going to be her maid of honor. But Polaris is acting strange enough at that point that I don't know how I feel about the idea of taking that as generally indicative of, of their larger relationship. Yeah, I mean, I'd really be okay with any writers just referring to them as being friends just because the history should be there even if it's never been explored. I recall them having a couple really good moments during the time when the during during the Phoenix era when when Jean was specifically on Muir Island trying to figure out what was going on with the Phoenix Force. Oh, okay, I'd kind of forgotten about that. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, on page it seems like Lorna has more interaction with Jean's alternate future daughter Rachel in the Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire than she ever really did with Jean, and I'd love to see that fixed. I'd love to see that fixed in the current continuity, especially because Polaris was written kind of weird, the one scene she showed up in in current continuity. Yeah, I mean, I think Polaris in general is a character I'd like to see centered and written well more frequently and more consistently. Again, and always, I will point back to The Gifted, which for all of its flaws had the hands-down best version of Polaris. If we're picking a second best, though, 
90s Polaris. I love 90s X-Factor Polaris. She just has this humanity to her and this this down-to-earth humor to her that I love. Word, and honestly, I think those are pretty compatible versions of the character. Yeah, yeah, the one on TV is just angrier, because her show got cancelled, I guess. Several folks have recently asked us whether we're going to be at Emerald City Comic Con this year. Yes. Yes, we will. Yes, so uh, if you're going to be around, come see us. Some folks have mentioned that um, it's helpful when we mentioned this uh, earlier rather than right before the convention, which makes a great deal of sense because people have to plan. So that's what we're doing right now. We will be at Emerald City 2020. I mean, we just very recently got confirmation that we're going to be doing a live show there, like within the last few weeks, got confirmation. And we don't know yet what day it's going to be on. So there there are details that we get alongside y'all, but we will definitely be there. In general, I think with, with Emerald City, it's probably fair to assume that unless that, that, that we'll be there unless we let you know otherwise. Because I don't, have we missed one of those since we started going? I don't think we have. No, we've had like every one of our anniversary parties in Seattle around Emerald City. Yeah, that's happening again too, by the way. Um, Once again at Phoenix Comics. Holy crap, are, are we going to be six? We are. We are going to be six whole years old. Although, I I don't know when Emerald City is this year. I think it's it's a while before our actual birthday. Well, we'll celebrate it anyway. Speaking of things we celebrate, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Hey, look, it's the Angry Claremontian narrator. How could you be so careless? Hazel Troost. One might expect such cavalier disregard from Jay Gentry, but you, of all people, should know how every small detail connects to the next, how even the smallest of changes can set off an inexorable avalanche of causality against which not even the bravest can stand. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, X-Force is one reunion after another. And they're all going to be awkward as hell. Happy 2020.